Okay, Philippians 2. Right before I came up here, I deleted my sermon notes by accident. Yeah, yeah, it happened. (laughs) So we'll be okay, though. (laughs) Let's just see what happens. All right. Uh, we are we are in this series. We are in this series on um, what is it? I don't have my notes. No, I'm just uh, we're <laughs> we're we're in this series on our value of being Christ centered. Um, we have a lot of values. They're painted out there on the wall, and you can read all the descriptions that are attached to those values on our website. Um, and those values for us, they aren't just like. It's not a marketing tool or just words we throw up. These, these are really the things that are important to us as we aspire to be the church that Jesus dreams of. Um, these are the things in theological terms, the things we see in the scriptures that we believe are important to God and are important to us. So if you've never read our values, I encourage you to, to look them up on our website. Um, but I wouldn't say all of, our, all of our values are important, but I would say there are one or a couple that stand out among the rest. And there's no doubt our first value is being Christ-centered. And this is what is most important to us, even on that whole list, to have Jesus at the center of everything that we are as a family on mission, Jesus at the center of everything that we do as a people who are, who are following him. Um, and so this is what our heart beats for. It's what we preach. It's what we want to live out. It's what's on our lips is this person, Jesus. Like, Tab family, you do a lot of good in the community, and I'm glad for that, but that is not what defines us. You know, there's, there's people who don't know Christ at all, don't name him, and they do good in the community. And we even work with a lot of those people and celebrate, you know, what they're doing. All we're saying when we say we're Christ-centered is that there is a person at the center of our movement. It's not our activity that's ever at the center of our movement. It's a person who was once crucified and is now risen and will come again. It is this man, Jesus, who's at the center of our movement. And out of that, we do all kinds of good in the community, but there's no question about order here, right? So in this series, we are looking at four of the most powerful texts in the New Testament that describe Jesus. And if you you ever want to just block out some time and spend time in worship, worshiping Jesus from the scriptures— then take note of these texts that Jake and I are preaching through over these next few weeks. Colossians 1, John 1, Philippians 2 today, and then Revelation 1 uh, will be next week. Jake will take us into that passage. But four of the greatest texts in all of the New Testament on the identity and the person of Jesus. And all of these passages in Scripture kind of give us a different angle as to who Jesus is. So today we'll be looking at Philippians 2. Um, I'm going to read it, Philippians 2, verse 5. We think that this was a song in the early church. In some of your Bibles, you may notice that the, the print is offset in some ways. And it's because, best as we can tell in the Greek, which was the language this was originally written in, um, this has a, a poetic kind of flavor to it. So it seems like Paul included a poem um, in this letter to the ancient church in, in the ancient city of Philippi, and he doesn't really say, hey, I'm going to give you a poem now, or he doesn't cite, like, oh, this is a poem. He just writes it like they already know it, and so it makes us think that what he's doing is writing an early worship song of the church, 
And we think that's what Philippians 2 is. We think the early Christians sang this together. And so um, we're going to read this together. Um, I I have some commentary I'm going to make on it that I may or may not remember because I don't have notes in front of me. Um, But uh, I would, I just, especially these passages, they're just describing the identity and the person of Jesus. I want to let the passage just have its own place among us before you hear anybody talk about it. All right? So could you stand to your feet just in honor of God's word? I'm going to read this in its entirety and you can follow along. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't think I've ever done this before, but this is what's coming to my mind right now. Can we just stand here in silence for a moment? I sense his presence among us. We're not just reading about him. He's here. Jesus, we acknowledge that the name that is above every name walks among us this morning. And in the silent acknowledgement, we also become strangely aware of each other, too. Sometimes when we're in a room with a lot of people and it's silent, we become aware of each other in a weird way. But Lord, that's what your presence is like. We become aware of you. And then we become aware of each other, too, in love. So, Lord, do this work among us. We don't want to just talk about you. We want to encounter you today. So be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Let's look closely at this song together. Verse 6 who being in very nature God, so this is what Christians have confessed all throughout history, that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, but we only believe in one God, 
So Jesus is God. This is not only what the early church confessed about him, it is also what Jesus claimed about himself. To be God in human flesh, Jesus who is God, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, just think about this for a second. The human problem is that we think we have equality with God. And then we try to use it to our own advantage all the time. Jesus, everything is flip-flopped. He actually has equality with God. Actually has something that we want to think we have. Right? He actually has it. Is in his very nature God. But in his humanity, in what we call the incarnation, and in him being born of a woman, being born into this world, being born into this life in a human body like ours, in coming low like that in his humanity, Jesus did not consider that equality something to be used to his own advantage. He did not reach for it, grab for it. And it would have been so easy for him to think in his humanity, that to accomplish God's purposes, he could use that power for good ends. This is, this is very often is the temptation that humans have with power. It ends up in such evil places, but at first we think we can be helpful. At first we think we can make a difference. At first we think we can change the world or something. And then even our best intentions turn sour when power is in our hands, Right? Jesus actually had equality with God, and somehow he never reached for it in his humanity. Somehow he went low. Somehow he divested himself of that. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Our, our, uh, I just think about all the pettiness that I've exhibited over the years. Wanting to have a place or to be understood or to lead or make sure I have, you know, all these petty feelings we have. He had it all and made himself nothing. Verse 8, I, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to prove that I'm not nothing. Double negative. Right? <laughs> I've spent a lot of time trying to prove that I'm something. Jesus was something. He was everything and made himself nothing. His abandonment to love. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. It reminds me of what it says about Jesus in Hebrews, that the Son of God learned obedience by what he suffered. How could God, who knows everything and is everything, learn something? Well, there's mystery in it, but somehow as Jesus entered into this human experience, Jesus went on this path, God in human flesh went on this path of becoming less and less, learning how to become more and more humble, perfect as though he was. It's a reminder to me Jesus never sinned. I've sinned a lot. It's a reminder to me that we all have so much further to go in growing in humility. 
and growing Lord. If the Son of God learned obedience by what he suffered, well, then I have so much. I'm just like daycare in the school of obedience, right? Um, Jesus went as low as he could go. I want us to reflect on something that Jake said last week and what it has to do with this passage. Jake read for us this amazing passage from the Gospel of John describing Jesus coming to earth. And in it, it says in John 1.14, John makes this statement, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. What does that mean, to see the glory of God? Obviously, glory is a theme all throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Um, But it's often, it's connected to a number of themes, but when the scriptures talk about God's glory, it's often describing some kind of revelation about who God is. So when God shows his glory, he's showing himself, right? So when the cloud and the storm and the smoke appeared on Mount Sinai and God gave the law, God was revealing something about who he's like, right? The law revealed to us something about God. That's what it meant ultimately. I mean, it manifested in peals of thunder and lightning and a cloud on Mount Sinai. But what God was doing was he was self-revealing himself to people. And it always causes reaction in people, right? There at Mount Sinai, there was fear and dread, like, oh, this is going to kill us. Um, It's when God's glory appears that people feel a sense of calling and identity. There's often a call to obedience, right? God is revealing something about himself and his will. That's what it is for God's glory to show up. So what did John mean? And he says, and this is his testimony, but it's a very, John's a Jew. It's a very Jewish thing to build a case for something off of eyewitness testimony. So this is the point John is making. We have seen his glory. There's more than two witnesses. It's a big deal in traditional Jewish thinking. John is saying a lot of us saw his glory, the glory of the one and only. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, obviously, he means that in Jesus, we saw what God is like. That God's glory, that God revealed himself in this person, Jesus. That in God in the flesh, it makes sense, God in the flesh, living around, living his life, saying the things he did, performing the miracles he did, that we saw most in Jesus the glory of God. I think John is saying we saw it even more than they saw it at Mount Sinai. We saw it even more than when the glory filled the temple in the days of Solomon. We saw it even more when that pillar of cloud and fire led Israel through the desert. We saw it even more than all of those things. We saw God's glory, the glory of the one and only. What's he talking about? The miracles? Sure. The miracles reveal to us something about the nature of God, the compassion of God. Jesus's yes to everybody who came to him for healing says something about the heart of God toward our sickness. Amen? So we learn something about Jesus in his healing miracles. Every time Jesus casts out a demon, we learn something about what God is like, about his 
righteous judgment against our spiritual enemy. Every time he cast out a demon, it was a judgment against Satan. So we learn something about Jesus and every healing and every deliverance. Um, certainly, the transfiguration, right? If you know that story, Jesus takes a few of the disciples. John was one of them. And they go up on this mountain and this cloud appears. It has all these like Old Testament kind of references. It kind of reminds us of Mount Sinai and Moses and in the Old Testament. And as a matter of fact, Moses appears. So it should remind you of Moses and Mount Sinai. Moses and Elijah appear on on either side of Jesus. And is that what John is thinking of? Well, certainly. Because it does say something to us about what God is like. Like when they saw Jesus and the light and the cloud and Jesus like changed before them and his clothes are flashing. I mean, that says something about what God is like, right? And the identity of this person. So God's glory certainly appeared in the transfiguration, no doubt. But here's something interesting about John's story. We have seen his glory. John was one of the disciples, along with Jesus' mother and the other Mary, who were there at the foot of the cross as Jesus took his final breath. A lot of people by that point had abandoned him, but John was there. And I think this is what John means when he says, hey, we saw his glory. You want to know what God is like. You want to know what Jesus is like. Well, I saw what God is like because I saw him die for humanity. I saw him embrace weakness for us. I saw him not reach for power for his own advantage. Any of us would have reached. If there was power to get out of that situation, any of us would have reached for it. Jesus had it at his fingertips, didn't reach for it. This is what God is like. Even the power that's inherent to his nature, he does not use for his own advantage. But he uses for us. He's always giving his stuff away. God is always becoming vulnerable, becoming weak for us. It's mind-blowing. We have seen his glory. I think when John says we have seen his glory, it's this song that the early Christians used to sing about that Paul records for us in Philippians 2. Make no mistake, this is a song about the glory of God. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, if a cloud of glory filled this room as, as we worshiped. And by the way, don't think that those things don't happen today. You know, one of the oldest saints in our church can tell stories from her childhood of going to camp meetings, these revival meetings that were happening out in the country and the sun would be going down, and she's old enough that there wasn't electricity at these camps, and sometimes they stayed hours in worship because a glowing cloud would settle on their meeting. It's crazy, isn't it? So don't think God doesn't do that stuff today. He's pleased to reveal himself in these ways, but would that be the greatest display of glory that could be among us? No. As great as that is, as wonderful as that is, what we learn is that when people become weak, when people give up power, when people don't reach for power for their own advantage, that is the glory of God. 
It reminds us, even as we say that we are Christ-centered movement, that to be Christ-centered means that we are also called into all kinds of places to love people. Because the Trinity, think about this, the Trinity could have remained Christ-centered in a way that didn't involve us. That would have been easier, honestly. Right? The Father forever looking in love on the Son. The Spirit forever glorifying the Son. The Trinity could have just minded its own business. Right? But somehow we got included in that dance of love. Jesus included us. The Father included us. The Spirit included us in his glory. It is to his glory for people to experience love. It is to his glory for us to love one another. And that's why this passage starts, this passage talking about the glory of God starts in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus because this is what it means to participate in God, is to love each other, to not use power for our own advantage but for each other's advantage, to lay our lives down. I was reflecting on this today this morning as I came in here and prayed, that every call God gives us, this isn't exactly what I'm preaching on today, but it's, it's, it's close. Every, every call that God gives us into any space where people are is a space certainly to, to create, is a call to create space for the glory of God. But what does that mean? It means that wherever God is calling you and me, he is calling us to go there and die. That, that's what Jesus did. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about the way that religious fanatics of whatever religion throughout history, and Christianity has had plenty of these religious fanatics ourselves, um, the kind of way that religious fanatics work themselves up for martyrdom if it means that they will be gloriously remembered and they can hurt their enemies in their own martyrdom. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't even grasp for anything in his final moments, in his final breath. He, he died in a way that left him with nothing. This is how God works in the world, friends. It's true about revival. It's true about evangelism. It's true about social justice. It's true about anything God calls us to. He is calling you to that neighborhood, that workplace, that school, that church, that system to go and die. And in the dying to your own wishes, your own desires, your own, in the dying to create space for the glory of Jesus to appear. He made himself nothing, did not reach for power for his own advantage. That opens up space for the glory of God to appear. Man, I'm feeling this lately. Because God, and some of you are probably are too. I'm being called to these new things. And it's why Jesus is making like, his presence so strong among us lately because he's reminding us of his goodness. He's just being so close and, and reminding us of how good he is and how faithful he is. I'm so glad for that. Um, but I do need reminded because it's like every time you get called to something, you're called to go there and die. I, I really resonate, for obvious reasons, I really resonate with uh, Paul's final words to the elders in Ephesus, a church that he had planted and seen come, seen come to maturity as he's on his way to Jerusalem to, to get arrested. You know, Paul meets the elders and they, 
sing and they cry together and they're giving their final goodbye. And Paul says to them, I only know that in every city I will have trouble. Man, I feel that in the time in which I'm walking with Jesus, in this time in which we're finding ourselves. It's like all I know is that in every city, all I know is that in every system, all I know is that in every place we're being called to, we will have trouble. But what does Paul say to them? But I count my life worth nothing to me. Because the call has always been to die. And friends, do you know, this has nothing to do with my ordination as an ordained minister of the gospel. It has everything to do with our baptism. That's what baptism is. We sign up for death in baptism. We say, my life counts nothing to me. That's why we go under the water. Say nothing to me, all of me. I go under, it means nothing to me. That's not just for ordained people. Ordination's kind of made up. Baptism isn't. Baptism was Jesus' idea. Right? And baptism is something that he has called us all to. And it is the same level of commitment for all of us that we would lay everything down and die. And so we don't take power into those places where God is calling us in ways that could accomplish righteous things. I'm being reminded of this because, friends, you should know it does feel like a death for me to make this transition. It does. This is awesome. You guys are awesome. And, and we live in a time where it can, it can be hard to find healthy churches. We're not better than anybody, but I'm just being honest. A lot of churches are closing. Feels like death. It feels like the giving up of, of a lot. But my life counts nothing. The assignment is always to go and to die. Now, that's not exactly what I was preaching on today. Notes are helpful. This, see, my problem is never not having enough words. It's having too many. All right. Um, here, here's the word of hope, though, the good news that I want to give to you in this death, and it's why we can die. I think I have this one sentence up on the screen. I want us to reflect on this, then we're going to close. Jesus descended into our very worst, and that's why we descend into the worst of the world, too. Jesus descended into our very worst, and from there, he ascended to victory. He did not conquer death from a distance, wave a magic wand and make it go away. He descended into it, got all up on it, experienced it, tussled with it in the grave. And there he had the victory. He descended into the very worst. So psychologists tell us that every fear can be traced to our fear of death. Now, that's been, you know, debated some among psychologists, but it rings true for me because if I'm not afraid to die, do I really care what you think about me? If I'm not afraid to die... Am I afraid of certain of petty discomforts? You know what I'm saying? Jesus descended into our very worst, which was death itself, and from there ascended to the victory. God's glory didn't have to be good news for us. He didn't have to include us in the story of his glory, but he did. He descended into the worst, and from there got the victory. I was reminded of this lately. John and Jake, could you guys both come up? That'd be great. I was reminded of this, and I feel a particular grace for this morning on something. Um, uh, 
I'm not sure what all of this will mean about where we go from here. Um, I experienced a, um, I experienced a healing in the last couple weeks. Can I tell you about it? (laughs) Um, yeah, I experienced the healing. Jesus descends into our very worst. I don't know what your very worst is. For all of us, it's death, but what flows out of death for you? Um, but whatever it is, Jesus descends into it. And from there, he gets a victory. Um, that's why he's exalted. He's exalted because of his humility. He's exalted because of his lowness. He's exalted because of how he comes in so close. So, um, no question. Guys, the worst part of my story has to do with abuse. Physical and sexual. Um, and I'm not going to be like terribly specific in this setting today. Number one, because I don't know where you are on your journey. And this is typically what I find. People who have experienced this and been through it, they don't need to hear all the details because they have their own details. Um, and then people who haven't experienced it sometimes like want to know the details. And I do experience that. As soon as people know this about my story, I go into these Christian settings where people like want me to tell it to them all over again. Um, and it's just not necessary. Um, like some of it's just not worth talking about, honestly. Um, I've been vulnerable you know, in places and safe places and you should pick safe places too. But I don't know where you are in your healing journey either. And so I don't want to send you into a dark place uh, by sharing details. That's not the point of today. Um, but experience physical sexual abuse. And I, I experienced the church. Honestly, you want to know, but, and maybe this will give you some like hope for your kids, your teens, however they experience. Listen, I... I had someone who just came into knowledge of my story very recently. They said to me, if anybody should have left the church, it should have been you. (laughs) Like so many nearby failures and betrayals. And unfortunately, I often experienced the church as a place that protected people who were abusing and not as people who provided me a pathway out of that. Um, So if anyone should have given up on all of it, I was one of those people, no doubt. Like, just forget it, you know? Forget the system of it all, forget the... You know, I was thinking the other day about... Let's just just talk about, like, the sexual side of it for a second. You know, in these environments, young, where there was so much shame attached, attached to those topics... You couldn't barely say the word sex in church. Um, and, and some of the people who I respected the most in terms of spiritual leadership were doing all this nonsense secretly and, and even hurting people. I mean, that kind of environment is beyond toxic. And the religion side of it all, like, mixed, I can't even describe to you how it messes with your mind. You know, to have all that religion mixed in with the abuse. It would be better if it wasn't there. It would be better if people didn't name Jesus in the spaces where they were abusing people. Um, But that was my story and the darkest parts of my story. Well, it's been like just years and years and years of healing, of encountering God in these powerful ways and, and God putting my life back together and 
um, you know, and grieving and just all, oh, God has been so faithful all these years. He just keeps meeting me, just keeps meeting me. Well, the timing of all this is really interesting, guys. Get this. A year ago this week, so I couldn't have planned this. <laughs> a year ago this week, I took a huge step in my own healing. And without getting into the details, it was something I had been afraid to do for years. Um, and I did it a year ago. Um, it, was, it was two days before the end of my sabbatical. And, and I was like, it's time. And so I took this step and I did it. So nervous while I took this step, I thought I was going to vomit. You know, it was taking me back into all of like this dark space. Well, I think I made one reference in the sermon. Um, it's just been an interesting year because I feel so emotionally, um, I feel more emotionally whole than I ever have. I'll put it that way. I'm more resilient than I've ever been. Like, I'll put it that way. Um, and, and that's coming out of like years of healing. Um, but as soon as I took this step, I started to have all these weird physical things happen. So it's been like a year of this. I have had panic attacks. I have vomited. I've just weird physical stuff for like a year. And honestly, I haven't said much about it because for the most part, emotionally, I feel fine. Um, it feels like really physical. And often it's been accompanied by a memory, and I couldn't say I have forgotten about any of these memories. There's not one of them I have forgotten about. But some of these memories, and some of you will know what I'm talking about, they're like frozen in my mind, and I can't remember any context. I can't remember what happened before or after. And when I really reflect on that memory, I'm like, whatever happened before was really bad. And I think whatever happened after was really bad. Um, but all I can remember is just like one piece, right? And I think it's part of how God designed our brains you know, to protect ourselves you know, from some things. But a mentor of mine said to me the first time I vomited this last year, after having one of those memories, I was in Pittsburgh between meetings, have this memory, have a panic attack, I have to drive home, I vomit. Um, and a mentor said to me, they said, you know, you probably should have vomited back then. And you never did. And so your body is, is doing it. Now, I am not alone in this, and maybe your particular struggle is different, but a lot of us have been through this kind of thing, right? Well, here's what happened. Jesus descends into our very worst. Whatever that is for you, he descends into the very worst, and from there gets the victory. So I'm in Kansas City two weeks ago, and I'm there for, um, um, with some meetings with a sister movement of ours, the Kansas City Underground. And I'm sitting with some of their elders around the fire, and we're talking mission and strategy and networks and all these things. And uh, one of the elders comes to me, I don't know him at all, says, hey, I have a word for you. And he pulls me aside, and he says, so we're standing off from the fire in the dark. He says, hey, I see the Lord putting a key in your hand. And the key is for inner healing. And he said, you've already been through a lot of healing. He said, but for the last year, you've been shaking and vomiting. He says this to me. He says, for the last year, you've been shaking and vomiting. And he said, it's just that little boy needing to shake and vomit. He said, it's been unpleasant, but Jesus has wanted this to happen because that little boy always needed for that to happen. 
And he said, so that's what's happening. You're at a place where you're safe. You know all of this, but that's, that's why. He said, but, he said, I just hear the Lord saying that this is coming to an end, that this season is done, and it's not going to last much longer. God's been working healing in it. And if you work with me, this will mean a lot to you. He said, the result of this healing is going to be you able to lead and minister from a place of less pressure. This is what he says to me. Um, he said, that's some of like the deep stuff that God's going to do. Anyway, of course, I received it. Um, and I come home, and a few days go by, and I'm alone in prayer at the community of celebration. And guys, it was just as simple as this. I just felt God's presence. I wasn't even praying about this. I think I was praying for you, actually. And I just felt God's presence, and I heard Jesus say, take up your mat and walk. It's just like that simple. Um, and guys, I don't, I don't like fully know how to describe what I'm telling you. Um, but I just know whatever that physical thing was, I just know I'm healed. Um, I just know that I am. I don't know, I don't know how it's going to play out. And I want to be clear. My story's super sad. Like, it makes me cry when I think about it. It's just awful. Um, and and it's, such a, it's such a bummer, too, because the church was all wrapped up in it. It just sucks. It really does. And God keeps asking me to lead in the church. God keeps asking me to go deeper into church systems, you know? And, and, and people will come to me and be like, oh, I could never do it. Well, I can't either. Do you understand? Like, it stinks. Like, I've seen the church, the church at its worst, shielding the wrong people, protecting the wrong people. And God keeps leading me deeper into this. But he keeps healing me. He keeps touching me, keeps meeting me, keeps healing me. So this is what I feel. Uh, when key imagery shows up in our dreams and in the prophetic, um, we've just learned over the years that sometimes it has something to do with authority. Um, that God is sharing his authority with us. And so it was interesting, the way that was shared was in this key imagery. And I just thought, oh, there's some, there's some authority present for healing, for something very specific. And here's what it is. I want to be clear. This is, today is not a prayer to take all your sadness away. Jesus is, was sad. I think Jesus is still sad. He, he grieves. So there is no prayer to take your sadness away. Sadness can actually be a really holy thing where God really does some beautiful stuff. So that's not what we're praying today. I think it has to do specifically with the physical effects of PTSD and trauma, the physical side of this, um, stuff that causes physical effects. Um, even as I'm saying this, some of you may be putting it together that some of the physical things you've been experiencing actually have to do with wounds that were inflicted. I, I want to draw some really clear boundaries. Today, you are not going to have to share your story. Um, I hope you do get to in a safe place. But you know what's really cool about Jesus? I, don't, I have these memories. I don't have to know what happened before or after to experience healing. He knows. He saw it. Right? He laid eyes on it. He knew. He knows. And I can trust him, right, with that memory. Um, so I don't feel the need to go back and dig all that up. I often pray, Jesus, if you want me to know, show me. 
and he's so gentle and he's so kind. You know what I mean? That he'll show us things. But I do feel like today there's just something uh, for physical healing, for emotional wounds. So wherever emotional wounds have been causing physical manifestations, I just feel like there's healing for that today. Um, Here's going to be our step to disempower shame. It's not going to be for you to share your story. It's just going to be for you to acknowledge that, yes, I I experience this sometimes. Um, It can be so simple, shortness of breath or sleeplessness or whatever, that I experience this to some degree. You're not going to have to get into the details. On the other hand, I want to find a way to disempower shame because it is really common. It's not an uncommon thing. So if you would stand to your feet, and um, this is what we're going to do. If you need healing in that way, then I'm going to ask you to come forward, and we're going to anoint you and pray for healing for